What's up, everybody? I'm TJ. And I'm Kelsey. And we are the, the Nashville, Nashville Wine Duo. Duo. We are here. We are here. <laughs> with another <laughs> podcast. We are in Franklin, Tennessee today, and we have the pleasure, our first ever interview with a wine importer. Yes. So we're excited about this one. JD. Hi. JD. It's is... kind of cool. I'm here with JD and TJ. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you just need some initials. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for meeting it's, with us today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited. Um, yes. We're excited. We've been looking forward to this. We have never interviewed a wine importer, and I have so many questions for you because I can't wrap my mind around what an importer, you know, what what's entailed in doing that. So I'm sure I'm going to disappoint you. <laughs> Well, this do you want to talk first about what he just poured us and then go into yeah, so, the questions? Yes. So what did you just pour us? Uh, for this wine right here. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the first wine is um, from uh, from the Loire Valley, which is the area that I specialize in. I specialize in northern France, and but the real heart of my portfolio is in the Loire Valley. And this is made at the end of the Loire Valley in Muscadet, but it's not Muscadet. So Muscadet, as mm -hmm. many of you know, has to be Melon de Bourgogne, this grape called Melon de Bourgogne. But this is made from the non-traditional grapes of Muscadet. Uh, this has a little Pinot Gris in it, Sauvignon Blanc, some Chardonnay, but it still grows on this super mineral soil of Muscadet. Rock, I mean, it's just pure solid rock. I'm not talking about pebbles or gravel, it's just cliffs and cliffs of rock with a little bit of dirt on top. And uh, so this is a blend that comes from this area. It's called Armorica. Um, and it's brand new. Uh, it's literally a, a wine that I kind of made with the winemakers about six months ago. Uh, we kind of did a, a, a tasting of, of, their, of the juice from their property. And um, yeah, I'm excited about it. The name Armorica is the old name for Brittany. So Brittany is the area of France just north of the Loire Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it historically used to come down into the Loire Valley and encompassed Muscadet, which is at the end of the Loire and the old Latin name, when Julius Caesar conquered France, the old name that the Romans gave to this area was called Armorica. So it's just paying homage oh, to, the, cool. to the history, the 2,000-year-old history of winemaking in this area. So, very cool. Very cool. Well, cheers. The Let's cheers. Try. Cheers. Yes. Yes. Thanks for letting us try this. Yeah, sure. So it's a Sauvignon Blanc blend, 50% mm -hmm. Sauvignon Blanc, 25% is Sauvignon Blanc that's harvested slightly early to give you kind of citrus, lemon, grapefruity kind of aromas. 25% mm -hmm. Sauvignon slightly late to give um, a little bit more tropical aromas. And then 25% Chardonnay and 25% Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris gives florality. Mm -hmm. Today it's smelling very Sauvignon. Yeah, uh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's all, all tank. Just... Very dry. It's completely zero zero sugar. Um, it is uh, about twelve percent alcohol, so it's a great summer hot weather uh, yeah. wine because it's low alcohol and um, and. I love it. No I feel like when you were talking about like the rocks and stuff, mm -hmm. like I feel like it definitely you get that like flint. For sure. Rock. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Right There's some smokiness to it. to it, which I love. And, yeah, and the yeah. smell is actually it's really like. I don't know. It's so it's really pretty, actually. Okay. I don't know. Like it's like light and yeah, fun and yeah, that's a great one. This is really good. So we're just we're just kicking this off here in the states, and we now sell it in about about fifteen states now. So, okay. Yeah. 
That's a great one. Brand new. So where can people find this in um, locally, uh, they can find it at St. Goose in Franklin. Okay. Uh, they can find it at several shops in, uh, in, uh, in Nashville. Um, it's, it's distributed by a company called Best Brands. And yeah. so anybody mm -hmm. can ask uh, for this wine at their local shop and Best Brands will deliver the wine to the shop the next okay. day. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. This is delish. Right. Good. I'm glad you like it. So I gotta know, how, how did you get started? How did you start loving wine and getting, then you know progressing into importing? Yeah. So I did not grow up in a in a in a family that uh, that drank wine. So I did I had no history in it. I grew up in Arrington, Tennessee, which for those of you who don't know where that is, that is a, a, just like a wide spot in a road in in Williamson County, uh, out in the country on a farm. And uh, but when I got to college, I worked uh, in a kind of French restaurant uh, in Knoxville. Um, and then I, when I graduated school, I went to do my MBA in France. So I lived in Paris. I did uh, a, an MBA in international business, and I absolutely fell in love with French wine. And the thing that I really fell in love with was the unpretentiousness, if we can say that, hmm. of French wine. The, the sort of the idea of drinking wine as a part of everyday life not drinking in excess, mm. drinking wine as an agricultural product. It's just mm -hmm. a regular, normal, everyday thing. And I think we think of, a lot of Americans think of French wine as luxurious and castles and, you know, yeah. sort of very fancy. And it is that. There, there is an aspect of that. But the more I got into wine, the more I realized that I saw these similarities between growing up in a farm in Tennessee and, uh, and, farmers in France. I mean, mm. these are people who have their hands in the dirt and this is, it's, it's a real agricultural product. Mm. Um, and I loved that. I could relate to that. I saw the, um, I just, I fell in love with the, with, with wine first. And then I fell in love with the whole, um, the whole, um, the whole, uh, idea of people who spend their entire year uh, working for five or six or seven days of, of harvest, you know, just getting, I love that idea. Yeah. And so I just absolutely had to get into it at that point. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is for me. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this is for me. Did you ever want to just be like a winemaker or did you want to, what facet, yeah. like in the beginning, did you want to kind of slide into in the wine world? I wanted to tell people about it. Okay. Uh, I wanted to, I mean, I'm fascinated with winemaking but what I really love to do is tell the stories. Mm. Uh, I love to experience the stories, tell people about uh, the place from which they come, the winemakers themselves, the history of, of the families who make these wines. These are many of the properties that I work with are multi-generational. Sometimes there are three, four generations still still living on the farm, which is wonderful. Okay. Some cases, you know, in, in one case, you know, 500 years of winemaking on the same piece of land. I think that's fascinating. That I is love fascinating. that. I absolutely yeah. love that. And I love telling people I mean, here in the States, we have just such a short history for our own country. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these wineries are older than our country. And I love telling that story. Mm -hmm. It's really neat uh, to me. That's so, so cool. And I love how like you talked about, yeah, how that being there like related to like you saw a similarity to growing up on a farm to then being over there. And yeah. Then, and I agree with you like that people do have this like vision of wine in France and you're like, no, like it's just like. It's an everyday, it's a part of life, it's sure. part of nature. Absolutely. Like, that's super fascinating to, like, hear you say that. Because I do agree with you. Like, I feel like so many people go there and you're like, oh, man, like, I couldn't ever, like, live that kind of life. And you're like, no, you go over there and, like, people are just, and they're not using it in excess. It's just, just like, sure. it's just like eating a meal every day. Like, it's not 
this thing that's made up in people's minds. Like, that's super interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think we also have this idea that, you know, wine, French wine or Italian wine or something has to be, has to be expensive or, you know, obviously, um, you can find inexpensive wines from those categories. You can find very expensive wines and that the people who are making these wines are somehow rich or special in some regard. The thing that makes them many times special is that they've simply inherited the land and what they do with that land is the interesting thing. Mm. Do you inherit the land and just make it the same way it has always been made without questioning, um, is there a way to do this better? Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you inherit that land? Do you say, oh my gosh, I've just given this, been given this amazing piece of earth that has so much history and you know, the Vikings were here, the Romans were here, the English conquered this, this, this town, you know, plus, plus, plus. What do I do to just absolutely make this the best that I can make it in terms of winemaking? Uh, and a lot of times these are winemakers who are barely holding on financially. These mm. are not necessarily rich people. These are just farmers. Um, and I love that story. I love kind of helping them through that, um, watching them grow, growing with them, helping them grow by selling a lot more of their wine here in the U.S. and, wow. and seeing that success that, that helping the success that we have helps them. Yeah. Um, so. So you're a history buff, too. I love history. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> see these yeah. maps on the wall. This is Omaha Beach. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was yeah. just thinking as yeah. you're talking, I'm like, he loves yeah. history. That's why you love this so much, Yeah, too. for sure. Yeah. It's just everywhere. It's absolutely yeah. everywhere. Yeah, for That's sure. That's really cool. I have this one, if I can just tell one quick yeah. anecdote. Yeah, oh, please. Of course. I have this one winery in uh, in an Appalachian a region called Chinon, which produces Cabernet Franc uh, wines in the Loire Valley. And I had visited this property a couple of times, maybe even three times, before they told me that the, 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 the area in their backyard, which they just called Les Blomoteaux, which means the White Coats, was named that because the Crusaders had a house there. Wow. And I'm like, how do you not tell people that the first time they come to visit? <laughs> it's just like a very normal part of yeah. life for them that there is just history literally in the backyard. Wow. And, and it still carries wow. the name hundreds of years later. So, anyway. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you were in France. Yes. Found this love of it. Yeah. And then, how did that turn into, like, what you're doing Yeah, now? so I, I came back and I started looking for, um, uh, I started looking for a job in the wine business. It took about a year and a half. I found a job on Monster.com, if you can believe it. What? Uh, <laughs> uh, for working for a wine import company in New York City. And, um... I I talked my way into that job. Uh, it was to be a director of operations of uh, a company uh, called European Cellars. So my wines are sold through European Cellars today. They're a larger company, and I have a smaller portfolio inside of, of European Cellars that uh, helps with uh, logistics and, and sales, uh, sales and sales support, etc. Um, and so I moved to New York City and got my first job in the wine business. And uh, it was mostly back of the house. It was kind of the the unromantic side of the wine business. It was the databases and mm-hmm. it was the accounting and plus plus. So, and then I slowly transitioned to the wine side, which is what I love. So kind of went in the back door, you yeah. know, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, and then uh, about um, four and a half years later, I decided that I wanted to start my own portfolio um, of, of, of the kinds of wines that I personally love. And so I put together this portfolio of wines from the Loire Valley and then eventually and, and moved into Champagne and then eventually moved into Brittany and Normandy with ciders. But it's all northern France. And um, I did that because 
one, I really love the wines from that area. They have a lot of freshness to them, acidity, crispness, low alcohol. I love that style. Uh, but there was also, there were very few people who were really doing those, especially the Loire Valley quite well at that point. And so I wanted to do it comprehensively, not just the big appellations like Sancerre or Muscadet, but now there are close to 60 appellations in the Loire wow. Valley. It's incredibly diverse. It's incredibly exciting. I love the fact that I'll never know it all. Um, yeah. and so for me, it was just a way to, um, to do something that I love, but also kind of fill a need uh, in the market. So, so how do you put together a portfolio of wine? Yeah, how, how does that even? Yeah, how does that even come about? Well, what what does it take to do that? Yeah, so the way that I started when I first when I first started off was the wrong way to do it, and the wrong way to do it is just to get in your car and drive to winery after winery after winery and taste their their wines and see if you like it or not. Now, you'll eventually find something that you like, uh -huh. but it just takes a long time. And there's a lot of kind of uninteresting wine that you kind of move through before you find the interesting stuff. Okay. So now what I do is I have a, a system. So most of the time, if I'm looking for a new appellation or a new region or something of that nature, I ask for a referral from somebody I know, a winemaker uh, that mm -hmm. I know in that area. I have a phone conversation with a winemaker. I, I, I want to see what the initial conversation goes like. Then I taste, mm -hmm. and I haven't even gone to the property yet. Right. I taste and I see if I like the wines. And then the final step is to go to the winery and generally spend four hours or something of that nature there tasting with them. I like to have a meal with them mm -hmm. just to see what they're like kind of socially because for me, it's a long-term commitment. I don't just pick up wines kind of throw them against the wall and see if they stick or not. I want, this is a 20, 30 year commitment. Yeah. I support every single vintage, good vintages, good vintages, quote unquote, bad vintages, quote unquote. Um, and so it's a very intimate, tight relationship. Yeah. They're going to have bad years. This grower that we're going to taste next lost 70% of his crop last year. Yeah. That's a tough year. Yeah. I have to support that. He's going to support it when sales are low because of tariffs or COVID or something like that mm -hmm. here. So, that's the process that I go through. Above and beyond that, I every everyone who is successful, I think, has to have a point of view. What is it about your portfolio of wines that is specific or unique to you? Um, is it uh, do you specialize in one region, for example? Is that your thing? Is it that you do only biodynamic wines? Maybe you only import all female winemakers or something mm -hmm. of that nature. Mm -hmm. So my thing was part regional. I do, I do Northern France heavily in the Loire Valley. And I work with people who work organically or biodynamically. And I work with people who harvest by hand. And that's kind of one thing that sets um, me apart from a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of importers. Um, and um, I like that real attention to detail um, and, uh, it's, it's that kind of focus and like drilling down, drilling down, drilling down. If you go from, you know, uh, 300 winemakers in an appellation down to the final three candidates mm -hmm. and you pick one of those three candidates, that process has served me well. And as a result, most of the winemakers that I work with have been with me for 10, 15 years. Wow. You know? That's so. awesome. Sounds like a marriage. Yes, it is, <laughs> it is very much like a marriage. When you were describing yes. it, I'm like, it's like dating. Yeah, yeah, like I'm absolutely. there through thick and thin, like yeah, I'm there right. through the hard times and there for the good times. For sure. And I'm not going to like leave you high and dry. I mean, yeah. that's pretty amazing. Like you don't hear about stuff like that, like in a working relationship. Right. Where it's like, I'm committed. Like, 
Because you kind of have to be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. See? It's fascinating. It is. It's so fascinating. Yeah. So, like, what I was going to ask, um, when you were talking about, like, your portfolio and kind of, like, what distinguishes you from other ones, what what's one of the main reasons you, um, like, with the hand harvesting? Like, why? Yeah, so um, I don't have anything against machine harvesting at all. It's just that the area that I work in, the Loire Valley, is, uh, is, is quite cold. Maturity is a real issue. So getting fully mature grapes is the issue that they have had historically for hundreds of years. It's actually getting, it's one of the only good things about global warming is that it's easier to get ripe grapes these days. But um, uh, getting um, ripe grapes machine harvesting is extremely difficult because on the east side of the vines or the south or the southeast side of the vines, the grapes get ripe on, you know, on a Sunday and on the other side of the same plant, they might get ripe on a Wednesday or a Thursday following that. So when you're machine harvesting, you're harvesting 100% of the grapes there. So you're harvesting ripe grapes and unripe grapes. So if you, what that leads to unfortunately is a lot of green flavors, underripe flavors. And I don't want that. Uh, in wines. So mm. I'm looking for fully, full physiological maturity of the grapes. So many of the properties that I work with are not only harvesting the same row, you know, once or twice, sometimes three or four times on the same row, uh, you know, a few days later, they're going through and they're harvesting parts of the bunch of grapes, not the full bunch of the grapes. So you're just mm -hmm. getting the perfectly ripe grapes. It's a lot, it's very intensive, uh, time intensive, it's expensive. Um, you know, you have to, this year is a real, real problem to find enough harvesters. Um, you know, to harvest at exactly the right moment, you have to, um, you have to have a team sometimes of 40 or 50 people. Where do you find that, 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 that many people who are dedicated enough to do it the way that you want it to be done? Mm -hmm. So, um, that's tough. That's tough. Machine harvester, you need one person. Right. You know. Yeah, and does the machine harvesting, I was curious about this too, because um, we've visited different vineyards that do it by hand or do it with the sure. machine. Does the machine do damage on the vines at all? I haven't you're really shaking seen, them, right? Yeah, I haven't seen much evidence of that. Okay. And I, lo I love you know, many wines that, I don't have a problem with wines that are harvested by machine, but it depends on where they are in the world. Okay. In areas where there's a lot of sun, you don't really have this issue. Okay. Southern France, Spain, parts of Italy, Many, right. many areas of California, you don't really have this issue. Because the grapes are all fully mature. Yeah. It, yeah. Things get, things get, maturity is not an issue. Okay. There. This area, the issue is, is getting full physiological maturity at the same time on the same plant. Right. So. I've never uh, had it explained fully, so I yeah, was curious. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we're trying another wine. We here. are trying Hello. another wine. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So this is a Sancerre. So uh, from a... Um, um, what I think is a top grower called Claude Rifo. Mm. Um, Sancerre is, uh, is a kind of big appellation. It's the w most well-known appellation in the Loire Valley. Sauvignon Blanc is the white grape. It's what we're tasting today. Um, but they also can make rosé or reds out of Pinot Noir. Um, you don't see those as often. This is a, um, uh, this is a grower. This is one of the few growers in Sancerre. And they're at this point, maybe over 300 growers in Sancerre. Very, very few of those harvest the entirety of their vineyards by hand. 
It's, it's a very machine harvested sort of um, appellation. That's why you get a lot of green in Sancerre. Mm. That's, the, that's, that's where you get that. This is a fully hand harvested um, Sancerre. It's aged in barrel. Um, barrel gives a little bit more texture. So you're gonna feel a little bit more texture than a sort of a classic Sancerre. And this is one of his tiny mono parcels. So it's just a little tiny parcel. Uh, I think in the US we might've gotten 25 cases of 12, something of that nature. Wow. This is just kind of a fun, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, it says there's only like yeah. 2,600 bottles. Yeah, yeah, it's super It's super small. Uh, it's from the 2019, an amazing, amazing year. While you might not be able to find this wine um, in a local wine shop very easily, the grower's wines you can find, Claude Rifo. Um, he, he makes a, a wide range of wines. This just happens to be one of the the fun little tiny parcels that he makes. So, so what are you going to nose? Do you I, get get a little, little, I get a little from the nose. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is yeah. very young. Mm -hmm. This is very this is very young. And so this is this is kind of a, a, a sancerre that's set up to age mm -hmm. for many, many years. So how long could you let this age for? This is delicious. Oh, my gosh. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, easily 10 or 12 years. But wow. I think this, this could go 15 years or so. Yeah. So what, how do you know if it's, like a white that you can age? Well, um, you can start with the grape. So um, the Loire Valley, actually the whites in the Loire Valley age longer in general than the, than the reds do. That seems unusual to us, right? We think of Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon yeah. as the one that ages or something of that nature. But there are two or three grapes that are grown in the Loire um, that age for a very long time, even in bad vintages from bad growers. Um, and one of those is Chenin. Chenin Blanc mm -hmm. is, the, is at the, kind of the top of the heap along with Riesling, although Riesling is not grown in the Loire. Um, those two grapes uh, on, in Northern Europe, uh, Northern Viticultural Europe, can age for quite a long time. Chenin, for example, can easily go 25 or 30 years. And in great appellations like Vouvray or Savonnier, for example, they can sometimes go 60 or 80 years, occasionally really? 100 years. Oh, for sure, wow. in, in great vintages. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is crazy. Yeah, yeah. There's just there's just this combination of the acid structure and this particular soil, which is ocean bed limestone, mm -hmm. um, that uh, that produces this wine that that has this this like a spinal column of acid that just kind of holds the wine together for a very long time. You can find it in dry wines. You can find it in off dry wines. You can find it in sweet wines. Sweet wines kind of age forever. It's kind of very difficult to kill them, sort of thing. Um, but um, so that's one of them. Muscadet is the kind of is the other one, and that's the one that people really don't know. So we think of Muscadet as a young, crisp white wine that you drink young, uh, and that is true. But it can also age. If it's made from good growers, it can age for 20, 25 years or so. We sell verticals of Muscadet. We have sold verticals of Muscadet to Michelin restaurants in New York, um, going back 20, 25 years. And just once again, there's this incredible acidity that kind of keeps the wine um, and uh, they're, they're stunning. And they get more mineral as they age, which is really neat. Oh, wow. yeah. We recently talked about Muscadet yeah. on our podcast. Yes, I heard but, that. But yeah, so, a lot yeah. of people call it Muscadet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the it's easily it can get confused. Yeah. Muscadet, a lot of times yeah. I've heard people, I mean, everyone around, I, a, a lot of places people think that it's sweet. It's going to be sweet. They uh -huh. get it confused with Muscadine, Muscadine, or Muscadine or Muscato, yeah. or something yeah. of that nature, but yeah. 
Well, we even get a lot of people on that train because it's a good, oh, it's such, such a, a good, good wine. Good. Yeah. And I'm sure the ones that you've tried have been incredible. This one is, this is probably one of the best Sauvignon Blancs I've ever I've tasted. I've never had. Uh, and I think it, I think one of the, like the main word that comes to my mind is like, it's very refined. Mm, I don't know what it just yeah. is. It's like, it's, it's very polished. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it, yeah. you can just tell that a lot of heart went into making okay. this wine. Like it just feels very special to me. I do love the oak element. Yeah, I think it works. Yeah. I think it, yeah, I think it really like brings out the song. I don't know, it's just like... This, so it has to be the perfect harvest to pull that off. So really? if, you, if you're doing a machine harvest and, and it's a very, it's a, it's a more green style, and generally with machine harvesting, you also have much higher yields. You have a lot more grapes going in. The oak generally stands apart from the wine. Right and here, where it's extremely low yield, um, uh, you know, tiny monoparcel, it's it, it's quite integrated. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's kind of a rarity. It's complementing what's going on. Totally. Like it just adds these elements yeah. to it instead of like being overpowering and being like, oh, like this is oak. Like it's just sure. this nice blend of. Flavors. Yeah, I do have a question too about like how would you? So mm. you know, a lot of people really got on this like train of like. Sauvignon Blancs from Marlborough, like New Zealand, mm. and that's kind of been like a trend over time. Yeah. And what would you say would be the main differences between wine from that region versus like Sauvignon Blancs from that region versus Sauvignon Blancs from France? Um, I would say the biggest difference is in the aromatics. You get um, uh, quite different aromatics. Generally in France, you get um, more minerality is and please don't kill me all of you who make Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> in New Zealand but my experience has been that you get more obvious minerality whereas um, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, New Zealand is extremely pungent like mm -hmm. it's very it's explosively aromatic but generally not rock kind of flavors not rocky kind of flavors more you like get, tropical you get a lot more tropical yeah yeah okay. so that's probably just a, you know it's obviously a, a, an issue of terroir but it's also probably an issue of maturity and uh, as well do you think that i don't know why because i've noticed when you go get to more like i guess like your average grocery store or some people would just go to buy a wine like yeah. i t tend to see more of that represented than any it's a very popular style it's well, a very popular yeah, style. I was yeah. just wondering if it's also like, is it easier maybe to import or? It's I don't not know. easier to import. I no. think you know, it's there are there's a lot of it there because there is a lot of demand for it. Yeah, there's a lot of people who like that style. Yeah. they're often Definitely. inexpensive, um, and um, more power to you if you like that. Yeah, that's great. Totally. There's a lot of there's a lot of different expressions of every grape out there. So yeah, this is just Sancerre at this level is very is very much about the rock. Yeah, and what's below the ground, and that's what comes out. The really neat thing about this area is that um, Sancerre lies on the edge of where an ocean was over northern France, what we would call the beach, quote-unquote, of this old ocean many millions of years ago. And if you don't believe that, you just have to walk through these vineyards. And when you, when you put your hands down in the dirt and you kind of move it around and disintegrate some of the, uh, some of the dirt around and, 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 and leave the rocks in your hands, you'll realize that the rocks are not rocks. They're oyster shells. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. <laughs> wow. And there are just millions of them. Yeah. And they're everywhere. You don't have to look for them. Yeah. And, and some of these vineyards uh, around this village in particular. Um, so um, that's what it's planted on. It's planted on this old ocean bed. The ocean went away and that's what that's what these vines are planted on. Mm -hmm. And that band, which is called the Kimmeridgian band, the Kimmeridgian limestone, runs from Sancerre into Chablis, just mm -hmm. to the northeast of there, and into southern Champagne, 
an area called the Cote de Bar. And those three appellations with different grapes have, a, have the same minerality and high acidity, rockiness sometimes to them um, that, that kind of brings them together, mm -hmm. which is really neat. So cool. Three separate wine regions, Burgundy, Champagne, and Loire. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. Yeah, it all adds to what we're tasting. I mean, wow. Yeah. But I tell people, you know, you can learn all these facts, but then at the end of the day, do you like it or do you not like mm -hmm. it? And if you like it, that's great. And sometimes you don't need to have all that information. A mm -hmm. lot of times consumers really yeah. don't care. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. At the end of the day, the wine has to be delicious. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that it adds context. I like adding context to it. That's a big part of what I do is just telling these stories. I think it adds a lot of value when you're tasting totally. wine that's grown on this old ocean bed. I mean, that's really cool. It is to me. So you do like the educational aspect for of, sure. of wine. It's really important yeah. for what I do because I work in an area of the world that people don't know as well. Yeah. Um, so have to have to create images for them, ideas and images in their head to kind of express what it's like there because, you know, it, it if you're not there, you have to kind of give a sense of the area. You, you know? gotta tell the story and be able to have them envision yes, being sure. there, taking the, like you were just describing, taking the soil and finding the oyster shell. Absolutely, <laughs> for sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah, how many wines do you have in your portfolio right so now? I've got 120 now. Okay. Yeah. 25, 26 properties, um, yeah. How, um, how much do you travel, like in a year? Yeah, so I go to France two or three times a year, and um, but I spend a lot of time traveling domestically. So I have one distributor in almost every state, well, maybe in the high, I don't know, 36, 37 states, perhaps at this point. Um, and so a lot of my time is going to visit the distributors with whom I work, educating their sales team, educating sommeliers in the area, uh, wine shop owners, et cetera, and helping them to, um, to market the wines. So that's important you yeah. know, to, yeah. to be out there and, and, and uh, show people the new vintages, show people new wines. Um, so yes, I, I travel quite a bit in the spring and the fall. The summer and the winter is a lot less. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of work. And you said that before we started doing this, you said your wife teaches French. Did yeah. you meet her in France? No, we met. Okay. We met. We met in uh, in college at uh, at Tennessee. Um, but we uh, we broke up, and um, when we got back together, we were both living in France. Oh, she was cool. living in Brittany, Armorica. Yeah. Right <laughs> um, and uh, I was living in Paris. We were both going to school at that point, and uh, we got back together in France, and here we are. Wow. Are you both fluent in French? We are, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, figured. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. Well, she has a PhD in French. She's a lot fancier than I am. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, uh, what's one of her favorite wines? Um, she loves these styles of wines here. Very bright, crisp. Uh, wines like we just tasted. This is like this is kind of a dream. The Sancerre, for example, is kind of a dream wine for her. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, cool. and she loves champagne. I mean, she's a she's a woman of very expensive taste. Yeah. When it comes to, <laughs> uh, to champagne. Are you um, really big on like food pairings with wine? I mean, I don't know about big on it. I people like what they like. You know, is what way I see it. I'm generally, you know, they're. There are so many different pairings that you could do with any individual wine. I try not to do like very, tell people very specific things to pair. Um, 
a wine that has a lot of acidity, the more acidity it has, which is a, a huge part of my book, the, the range of possibilities opens up. Low acidity wines, it closes down. Um, and uh, so I, there's just so much potential for all of these wines that I really don't really get into pairings as much. It's just, um, it's a big thing in France, mm -hmm. sort of the whole pairing, you know, the specific wine with this. And there are people who are really good at it. It's just not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just say drink what you like with what you want to eat. Yeah, yeah. You know? totally. I mean, maybe let's not do a dozen oysters with a Napa cap. Let's yeah. maybe <laughs> not do that. If we could avoid doing that, that would be awesome. <laughs> no, but, yeah, but, uh, this would go great with oysters. Yes, it would. For, um, sure, for sure. So before we dive into the last wine, mm. why don't you um, tell us about your book? My book. Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about a book. Oh no, no. When I say a book, book. I mean uh, I mean my portfolio. It's another oh, yes. word for my portfolio. Okay, well, yeah. Okay. No, I thought I mean, you were talking about like an actual book. Oh no, no, no. Maybe <laughs> one day I'll write a book. Too. I no, you did. I mean, the yeah. way you were talking about yeah, it, I was like, no, I'm sorry. It's just, I'm sorry. It's kind of industry slang. It's another word for portfolio. So the 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 portfolio of wines. Well, the way you talk, I'm like, you clearly you should write a book. I have a lot. I do have a lot of stories. No, I mean it. Like I was listening to like, I want to know about his book because I want to read his book. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wish. I wish. I wish. One day we'll see if that's going to work out or not. No, it just means my portfolio. Um, so anyway, yeah, I have about 26, 27 properties in the portfolio. Um, so and you said each state you're working with a dis different distributor? Yeah, yeah. So okay. U.S. laws require generally that you have one distributor per state. So here in Tennessee, you work with Best Friends? I work with them uh, in Best Friends in Nashville yeah. and in Chattanooga. Okay. So, and then um, in, in Knoxville, I have someone else called uh, Knoxville Beverage. And in Memphis, a company called Phoenix. Okay. Tennessee is an anomaly because it requires multiple distributors in the same Tennessee state. Tennessee seems crazy. It's a little cray cray. It's a little cray cray. Yeah. And we haven't spent, you know, it's high tax for, for alcohol. And, yeah. Well, we were talking, we were hanging out with some friends last night that they have a, oh, like a wine. They have a vineyard in They have a vineyard in Argentina. Argentina. Yeah. And um, they were telling us that, I guess, when you have a relationship with a distributor, right, that it's like... It lasts it has to be like ninety nine years or something like that. Wasn't that what they were saying? Yeah, when they sign a contract with when you sign it, yeah. Like, yeah, unless they release and so, you or something. Yeah, like we thought that was kind of crazy. I was like, oh my gosh, like ninety nine years, and like then what if it doesn't go? Like, well, that's exactly that's exactly it. So a lot of states, um, once you choose a distributor, you're kind of married to that distributor, and those are states which we call franchise states. They own the franchise. They own the rights to that brand whatever brand it is, it's not my entire portfolio, but it would be this bottle of wine, you know, the brand that that represents, they, they would own that. Now, that's not every state. Some states, if you're unhappy with a distributor, you simply move to another distributor. Mm -hmm. and, and, but there are some states um, where uh, you can't leave. If you, if you leave, the only way to leave is to, well, you can do it kind of two ways, depending on the state. The new distributor, if you want to move to someone else, can purchase the rights, like literally write a check for the rights to, to, to that, and it's generally a multiplier of, of yearly sales. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can kind of prove over the course of three to five years that they are not doing the job, and that requires a long time and a, a lot of documentation, and yeah. generally people don't really do that. So. It is what it is. It's kind of a pain in the neck, but it does, you know, it, to them, it, 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 um, it kind of protects them from doing work, a lot mm -hmm. of work, 
and uh, and then somebody else taking the credit for it. And, you know, after they built a brand, somebody else, you know, reaping the benefits of that. I think yeah. that's why it's originally was set up. And I, I get that. I totally yeah. get that. Um, but um, I would kind of like it to be between the two. I'd kind of like it to be easier to leave um, some distributors. But uh, it is what it is. Every state is different uh, yeah. here in the U.S. And then, of course, there are some states where... Uh, the state controls uh, the, uh, the the wine business. You know, right. uh, Pennsylvania is one of those states where you you sell uh, to the state. The state makes the buying decision, uh, and then they they have the state stores. New Hampshire is another one of those where they have the state store. So when you go to buy wine, you have to go to a state store to. Is it more East Coast that does that kind of concept? Yeah, it seems yeah, like it. yeah. It is. It's 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 more on the East Coast. Which yeah, is Utah has a little bit of that as well. Okay, but. Um, yeah, it's mostly East Coast. Okay. Yeah, and then there's some states where you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Whatever you want. So yeah. you know, well, those are the states you like to work with. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, All just, day long. Absolutely. Love that. Love that. Right. Well, we're gonna try this last one. Yeah. So last wine is um, really one of my favorite wines in the book. I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I do. Mm. Um, this is a grower called Jean-François Mario. And uh, Mario, he is in an area of the Loire Valley mm. called the Touraine. The Touraine just means the area around the big French city of Tours. Um, there are kind of fancier appellations inside the Touraine. Vouvray is inside the Touraine. Chinol is inside the Touraine. And then you can also have just regular terrain. It's kind of like the idea of like Côte de Rhone, where you have Chateauneuf as a more prestigious appellation inside, inside this area, okay. you know, called the Côte de Rhone. It's the same concept. So this is a uh, an old vine gamay uh, from this area called the terrain. Uh, the wine is called Le Bois Jacou, or the Jacou Forest, the Jacou Woods, um, which is just a the, the old parcel uh, that is there got that name because the, the forest that surrounded it had that name uh, back in, in, in the time. One of the really neat things um, about a lot of these old names is that they've been around for hundreds of years. Um, nobody knows why a lot of them are called what they're called. They have no idea. It's just that a lot of them were codified when Napoleon named himself emperor and things didn't really go well for him in the end. But... When he was in power, he actually mapped all of France, including every piece of land and what it was called at that point. Every hillside, every field, and each little field and hillside had a had a name to it. And it could be like one of you know, uh, one in Sancerre is called uh, the uh, the place of the goats. Um, you know, uh, there's another one in Chinon called the two dogs. Um, um, this one is called the Jacu Forest. Maybe somebody with the name Jacu owned the woods at one point, yeah. and it just stayed for a hundred or five hundred years. Nobody has any idea. So anyway, so this is um this is a very old vine gamay, um, hand harvested gamay that's aged in these big, huge wooden vats called foudre uh, in French. Uh, gamay, of course, is known really more in Beaujolais. Um, this I would say has a more Loire kind of accent on it. It has a, a, a little bit more herbaceousness to it. Um, uh, it's not the kind of tutti fruity style Nouveau Beaujolais kind of gamay. This is a, a very serious structured um, structured gamay. Mm. More similar to like a Cru Beaujolais. Yeah, we were learning yeah. about carbonic maceration the other day mm. with mm -hmm. uh, Beaujolais. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So how old are the vines that this... 
So the oldest would be probably 70 years old, okay. which is quite old for this area. Yeah. Um, uh, and the youngest would be in the 30s, something of that nature. Okay. You don't find incredibly old vines in this area like you do in Spain. Parts of Spain, you find like 100, 120-year-old vines. The Roussillon in France, you find sometimes the same thing. Here, they're not quite as old. That's what old vines are considered yeah. uh, in this area. The really neat thing about, if I can just do one more Please, his, history, no, history good. story, history, history like is that um, the, the barn that um, this um, winery is, is based in, um, and it really is a, an old barn, it's an old stone barn that was built over the mouth of a cave. Um, American soldiers lived in this in this old barn in World War One. As they they finished fighting mm -hmm. in World War One, they're heading back to the coast to get the ships to take them back to the states, and they had to be lodged somewhere. So some people put them up in the town hall, some people put them up in the church, and some people put put them up in their homes or in their barns. So we have evidence that a lot of Americans were in what is now the winery and they made wine at that point. And there was a lot of wine around, I'm sure. So these boys had a really good time. <laughs> a lot of Americans who hung out for a few weeks in this barn and they left graffiti on the walls. Really? Uh, they carved their names and where they were from and wow. you know, uh, the date and that kind of stuff. And you can go and you can st still see that. Uh, Did you go? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I think there's a picture on my, on my website. Um, that, that shows one of the guys, uh, his their graffiti that he left. But I just love that. My great-grandfather stayed about 15 minutes from there in a, in wow. a little town. We found that in his notebook that he bought, brought back from France. It was 15 or 20 minutes away. So. Was he in the war, too? He was, yeah. He was in World War I. He was a 19-year-old farm boy, never really left the South, and, you know, became a machine gunner's assistant and went to France, got himself a ticket to France. Yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We've heard so many, like doing our interviews, which we've done now for a couple of years, we've heard so many stories of military people. Yeah. The, their father, grandfather, uh -huh. great great grandfather mm. went over to Italy or. or sure. Or, yeah, and that's actually France. how they started loving wine. And that's how oh, they yeah. started. That's, yeah. they, that's where their love for wine kind of uh -huh. started. During World War I. And then they came yeah. back to the World States and planted the vineyard. That's really neat. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, it always goes back to military and just being over in France. Yeah, there's one, we're actually going to Georgia again in October, but there's um, a vineyard that we go to called Crane Creek that's in Young okay. Harris. Yeah. And um, he's a third generation winemaker mm. and his grandfather was in the war and went to Italy and then just fell in love with wine and came back and they're at, they're on the Appalachian so they're like really, really high up, like 2,000 feet. Neat. That's great. And you're talking about like in terms of like alcohol, like they're sit at like 11, 12 percent. Oh wow, that's um, quite low for the South. Yeah, yeah. and they're very... I mean, they do Save All Blanc. They do and it's just this crisp, clean mm. wine, and you taste like the little the little earth when you're tasting it. You're like, this is the earth that it's yeah. coming from. I need to try those. You should. So you should go yeah. there because I mean, really, we were so amazed. We met them. They were. He was doing theater for change in Nepal. Him and his wife. Oh wow! And then he just decided that he got a full scholarship. Sure. And then was just like, I think I want to. I want to do wine. And then came back and, I mean, you meet them and you're like. It's, they're the coolest people. I mean, yeah, it all started in Italy. Came, you know, Italian wine. Yeah. Came back and was like, well, what grapes can we Do grow here, here. in sure. northern Georgia? Yeah. Yep. Let's start planting those. Yeah. Um, but take the Italian kind of approach to approach it. You know yeah. what I mean? Sure, sure. Yeah. And then we know another winemaker in northern Georgia. He's from Italy, Italian mm. winemaker. Married to a French woman. Married to a French woman. Okay. And now he's making wine in northern Georgia. Oh, he's wow. taking an Italian wine approach to making... 
muscadine wine, but then bringing over, you know, Italian uh, wine uh, to the to the winery there. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's unbelievable. That's actually what kind of really made us start to fall in love with wine. I think even more so is when we started to visit Georgia and we met these winemakers and they, we it was before like kind of what you were talking about earlier, like it was very glamorous to us, very like, mm-hmm. you know, more pretentious. Yeah. And then when we met the actual winemakers, you just realize like it's, it's such a hard job and they're not necessarily like, it's not this like Hollywood. It, right, I mean, sure, they're actually sure. so down to earth and like, mm. you know, they're getting inside these vats and like cleaning them out. I mean, like it's a dirty job. Absolutely. Like it's, it's 24 seven. Yeah. 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 Right. And, um, I don't know that, that was kind of like, well, the one thing is like 80% farming. Yeah. You know, 80% farming and 20% something else. Something else, I don't know. yeah. They, you know, it's like, yeah. it's all work. Yeah, yeah for sure, for <laughs> sure. This is the fun part of it. Yeah. This is drinking this wine. Is the product, part, but... And then a little consumer goes, you know, looks at a shelf and just grabs a bottle. It's like, you know the effort and time and work that many, many sure, fans have sure. put into this? Absolutely. I mean, even your part of, like, traveling to France and, like, finding, Just to get you it know, on the shelf. Just Absolutely. to get it on the shelf. Yeah. Absolutely. For yeah. Sure. These people pay whatever amount just to grab it and they don't even, you know. Yeah, I... <laughs> It's I, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But like what you said, there's a place for everybody with it. And there's sometimes people don't need the whole background and they just want a good they glass of wine. Absolutely. And that's there's totally okay. That. Yeah, that's totally okay. That. Yeah, that's the beauty of wine though, I think. You I know? agree. And I think as people like ourselves, mm-hmm. the more that you kind of want to learn, mm-hmm. that that's there but if for you, you don't, to it's learn. Okay. And if you yeah. just want to drink a good glass, for sure. Drink a good no cap with oysters, though. No, no, <laughs> no cap with oysters. Yes. If you're listening to this, please don't do that. Or... Well, this has been so fun. This has been amazing. Yes, thank you, JD. Yes, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, guys, for We'll end on a coming. cheers and yeah. a gamay. Delicious. Yeah. Cheers. 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 So delicious.